Amen. Isn't that encouraging? The Lord is, uh, is so gracious. And to everyone uh, who's behind me right now, just a special thanks uh, for your sacrifice to lead us to worship. I am, uh, am so grateful uh, for all of you. Um, I'm, I'm also grateful. Um, you know, God gives gifts uh, to his body, and it's an amazing thing. Uh, Brian Nelson uh, actually got a call from Sean, who lost his voice and couldn't sing. And so Brian led worship. He hadn't rehearsed. Uh, this set yet, and so uh, and so, great job, and and uh, praise God uh, that He's worthy of what we sing about. That He is stronger, and that and, and that it's ultimately um, about the Lord. If you have a word with you, a uh, uh, if uh, you would turn with me to the 14th chapter of Romans. If you don't have uh, one with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, we would love for you to take that Bible home with you. Um, um, but even before I pray and ask the Lord just to give us belief and understanding and application and then read, um, I want to take just a minute and do uh, just a little bit of family time right here uh, as a uh, church family, okay? Um, as you guys know, uh, back in June, uh, we started a process to, uh, to hire someone to lead uh, as our lead pastor over worship. And um, uh, I'm incredibly grateful to Sean and the entire team. They have done a remarkable job uh, in these months. Um, but um, in the last uh, three, four uh, months now, uh, we have uh, made lots of phone calls, uh, lots of uh, visits. Um, and and uh, next Sunday, there will be a man who will be here. His name is Mark, and his wife um, will um, also be here um, and uh, Mark, Mark and Tangie are, um, uh, are friends. We're not certain what the Lord's will is, okay? And so uh, we're not asking you to vote. But there's two, uh, two main reasons why I'm saying this right now, okay? First of all is uh, next Sunday, um, you're going to see somebody here who's leading worship. Um, and so, so that you're not asking, uh, gosh, who is this guy? We're not certain if it's the Lord's uh, man for us, but we are praying uh, to uh, to ask God, would you use this to confirm? And so there's been lots of visits, lots of phone calls, and um, and uh, and there will be several meetings next weekend uh, with him and his wife, uh, with various people here. Um, and um, but then second, it's to just bring the entire church family into the process that you would be praying and just say, God, is this is this uh, your, your man for us? And so I would just ask you to be uh, praying for that time, uh, that, that uh, God would give us tremendous wisdom and uh, him as well, okay? So if you would, uh, let's uh, bow, let's, let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful uh, that you have written um, us a book and have given us instruction and understanding for how to live in your world. We are so thankful that the pages of this Bible uh, tell of the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we believe that every page points specifically to Christ and what Christ, who Christ is and what Christ has done. And God, we want to make much of Christ. God, we want to see Christ even in these 12 verses. Uh, we also um, want to be able um, to honor you in faith. Your word says, Lord, it's impossible to please you with, without faith. And so, God, we ask that as we read your word, that you would help us to believe what it says, that you would help us to understand it and apply it to our life. God, we thank you for the passages 
in Romans that, that, that really illustrate and, and show us what the gospel really is. And we thank you for this passage that, that really highlights how we as a body of believers live in response to the gospel. And so please help us. Would you speak through weakness and bring glory to Jesus alone? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the 14th chapter of Romans, starting in verse 1, says this. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let no one who eats then despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person raises up in his own heart one day as better than another, while another he does so with all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind or heart. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord both of the living and of the dead. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, there's a lot in these 12 verses, but I believe if you could sort of boil it all down into a very, very simplified statement, I think what he's telling us here is this, is that it doesn't take very much to ruin a really good thing. Um, we, I talk about a place down in Georgia, a farm. It's, it's sort of our family's uh, sort of favorite place on this, on this globe. Uh, there's actually, I thought, you know, I don't know if I've ever shown you a picture of the farm. I, I, I sort of talk about it a lot, so I thought I'm going to add just one little, one little picture. It says nothing to do with the sermon whatsoever, but this is the farm that we go to. Uh, the uh, house is right behind us uh, in that picture. And just to the right of it, my, uh, my wife's parents, uh, they, they, uh, this, this place is, is sort of like um, boy heaven. Um, there's four-wheelers and uh, jet skis for the pond and zip line, and there's, there's great hunting and fishing and things, and things like that. Well, um, this, this pond, oftentimes, it'll, it, it, well, it's dirty for one. Um, you know, it's just a pond. But uh, but there's also things in there that, in particular, when the boys were younger, they didn't want to swim with. Uh, there's uh, every now and then there's snakes and alligators and things get in there, and and so what what, what my what my what my father-in-law did was he said, well, let's just buy a little pool, um, um, and uh, so you know it, it was about four feet up, something like that. And it was just cold water, and just and you were always fishing leaves out of it and things like that. But but it was a pool that they could swim in. Well, one time, Harris is his name, and. 
just an incredibly generous man. He's, he's, he's mowing, right? And he has a, it's a big farm. And so there's, he has a, bush, a, a big mower, big bush hog. And, uh, and, and he's going through and he, and, and he spins up a rock. And a little bitty rock goes sailing. And it hits the liner of that pool. And all the water gushes out, right? And it was at a place. It was about a foot off. And there's no way you can fix it. And, uh, and the pressure of the water even opened that hole up a little bit further. Now, I tell you that story so that you can take that image and I want you to translate it as best as you can to this church in Rome. You see, the really good thing that Paul has in mind in Romans 14 was the unity within the church, sort of like the water within the pool. And what he does in this is, is he speaks that he says, you know, it, it doesn't take very big of a stone to break the liner that holds all the unity of the church together. Starting in the first century here in Rome and going all the way to our century here in Raleigh, here in Providence, Christians throughout the ages have ignored the importance of unity. They've ignored, we've ignored Jesus' prayer for unity. We've ignored the gospel that brings us together, that ties us together as a body of faith. And we have chosen rather to splinter over non-essentials. We've done this throughout the ages. Taking rocks and throwing them at the liner of unity. Seeing how much, seeing, seeing, seeing how big of a hole we can make. Sometimes we're not the ones throwing it. We're just not defending the liner of the unity from other people who are throwing. And the fact is, is unity is such an incredibly important thing that Jesus Christ, the night that he was killed, the last thing he prayed about was this. God, Father, would you bring my people into complete unity, that they would be perfectly one just as we are one to show the world that you love the world and that you sent me to the world. And yet, it's amazing what the church will divide over. It's amazing how small of a rock we'll toss at this liner and actually break open the liner and allow unity to spill out upon the ground. Should a Christian drink alcohol? Should a Christian watch or enjoy MMA? Should a Christian work on a Sunday? Should a Christian go out to eat and make someone else work on a Sunday? When our kids are little, should we give them shots? Should we enjoy Halloween or turn all the lights off and act like no one's home? Should we homeschool or send our kids to private school or public school? What do I think about the families that don't choose the way that I choose? Should a pastor preach in jeans? Which Disney princess is the prettiest, right? (laughs) We'll divide over anything. It doesn't take much to ruin a really good thing. And so here in Paul's third chapter of application... Right, chapters 1 through 11, he's describing the gospel. And then starting in chapter 12, he says, Therefore, in view of the mercy of God, I, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And what is he going to do? He's spending five chapters now showing us the application of how do we go out and live this gospel in our, in our own lives. So what he's going to do in these 12 verses is he's, he's, he's going to give us some very practical principles intended specifically to keep us together. So that we're not distracted from the mission of telling the world about the worth and the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. 
So I want to show you three principles here, three things. They're very, very practical. This whole chapter is very, very practical, and it's pertinent to us. The first is this, is that God desires for us to develop personal convictions. God desires for us, for you and me, to develop personal convictions. See, in my own life, we all, um, I, 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 I take every issue that I know of and I place it into one of two hands. There's probably some way that you process information and convictions and things like this so that you prioritize what's more important of an issue as opposed to one that's not quite as important. For me, I place them into one of two hands, and it looks like this. First of all, there's some closed hand items, some closed hand issues. And what these are are things that are non-debatable. These are essentials that are specifically commanded or forbidden within Scripture by God himself. And so things such as I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, right? That goes into a closed hand that says there is one way to God, it's Jesus Christ. When, when God's word says that Jesus is man, I believe in the humanity of Christ. And I put that in a closed hand, right? The deity of Christ, the authority of scripture, as well as certain actions where he says, love one another. Well, love, the presence of love is righteousness. And so I can never say, well, that's optional. No, that's an essential. We're not going to debate at Providence if we're supposed to be people of love. Nor are we going to debate when God says specifically that is sin. So when God says, you know what, to get drunk is sin. Do not get drunk. We're not going to debate the merits of of being drunk or not. It's just sin, right? And so those things go into a closed hand. Well, then there's open hand, right? And open hand are those things that can be debated. They're non-essentials that God has not specifically commanded or forbidden within the scriptures, There's no place within the Bible that says thou shalt not enjoy Halloween or practice Halloween or dress your kids up at Halloween. There's no place. And so what God does with these is now this is not as essential as as those that he's already said. This is what I want you to do. And so what he does is he relies upon the scripture. He, has a lot, he, he relies upon our own discernment and the Holy Spirit at work in our life to help us to arrive at conclusions. Now, it's important you understand this, okay? In Romans chapter 14, these 12 verses, and then next sermon uh, next week as well, is that he's only addressing open hand issues here. So these principles, they apply to open hand issues, Specifically in their context, which may not mean anything to you in your context, right? They were struggling and contending and throwing rocks at the liner of unity within their own church over whether or not certain days are more holy, meaning holidays. What should we celebrate? Are there certain days more important than other days? As well as, should we eat meat? Should we eat meat? Now we're going to find next week that he adds drinking wine to the list. Okay, well, you'll you'll actually see that next week in verse 21. But he spends a lot of time, this idea of eating. Should we abstain or should we not abstain? Now, you have to understand that this had nothing to do with nutrition. This wasn't vegetarianism. This is not a first century pets or people campaign. Nothing like that, okay? What's happening here is this, right? In pagan Greek cities, just like Rome, there was a tremendous amount of idolatry. 
And how you would worship these idols is you would sacrifice meat to these idols. That meat would then become clean and then it would be sold at the market. Well, let's just say that you're a first century believer. You came to faith in Jesus after worshiping idols, vain idols. God opens up your eyes and now all of a sudden you you come to faith in Jesus and you look at that and you go, oh my goodness, I could never eat that kind of meat again. This is the meat that he's talking about here. What would happen if you went to a wedding and somebody served that meat? And so what's happening, right, is you have some, some, some of these Christians in this Roman church. They're saying, I refuse to eat this meat. And not only that, but I'll pass judgment on any Christian who does. <laughs> but then other Christians were saying, no, no, you have it all wrong. There's, there's only one true God. And the fact that this meat sits before a piece of wood or stone that's been carved into an image that we... That, that, that bears some resemblance to something God created on the earth. It doesn't change the spiritual structure of the meat. It doesn't make meat spiritual meat or holy meat. It's just meat. God made it all. We're supposed to be able to eat with thanksgiving. So don't be so weak. Now, I want to encourage you not to check out because our unity at Providence is not currently threatened by diet and holidays. The fact is, we have our own issues. We all have plenty of rocks in our pockets that can divide and conquer the unity in this body. And most of them are about things that are not essential. So what is Paul's instruction? Well, his first one, you see in verse 5, he says, Let each person become fully convinced or persuaded in his own mind. Now, this is shocking to me. I want you to think about what he does here for a second. He basically comes and he goes, okay, all you people who are squabbling over non-essentials, I want you to know here in this church, there'll be no waffling or sitting on a fence. Everyone take a stand. You think, how does that help? So he's saying there's a really big fire. So everyone get a big bucket of gasoline. And I think he does this for this main specific reason. And that is that when there is risk, and there is obvious risk in one of two ways, and Paul's weighing out the risk, what's, what's riskier to the body of faith? For we as believers to have this, these flimsy convictions that really can't withstand anything, we don't even know why we believe what we believe, and we'll just live like that and hope no one asks. Or that we take our heart to the Lord. And with an open Bible, we say, God, would you instruct me? Would you help me to see? God, is this the conviction? Is this the thing that you would have me do so that I could honor you? And Paul decides that even though it may be risky to ask every believer in the church to have a firm conviction about something, he says it's more risky for any believer not to. It's amazing. Paul is not inviting us to have a conviction. He's commanding us to have one. So what he's doing here, I believe, is he's setting up Romans chapter 14, verse 23. And he tells us why we need to have a conviction. He says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. 
because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Convictionless life is not faith in what God has said. And so he's, God calls that sin. And so what's the application here? It's simply this. He's urging each one of us on any given issue that's before us to dig into the scriptures and seek God's direction. Say, God, I want to know your will. I want to know what you would have me do in this situation. And with an open Bible to prepare ourselves for the day when we will all stand before God and give an account for our convictions. You see, the day will come. There will be a day when you, by yourself, stand before your creator. Your parents won't be there. Your friends will not be there. Your siblings will not be there. Your pastors will not be there. You can't rely on anyone else's knowledge or convictions to give you an answer that day. And he is going to ask you to give an account for the convictions of your life. And so Paul's saying, prepare for that day. So that when you stand before him, even if you got it wrong and your discernment was wrong, you could at least say, well, God, I stand here by grace. But as I was thinking about that, I saw these scriptures. This is why I decided to do that. And so Paul simply says, look, God desires for each one of us to develop personal convictions. I want you to know something. Flimsy convictions cultural convictions, meaning, well, everyone was doing it. That's, that's kind of a sort of an American thing. Inherited convictions. Well, I, that's what my parents told me. That's what my dad believed. That's what my mom did. Will be absolutely and totally insufficient on that day when you stand before your creator. And so Paul says, okay, look, to protect unity, the very first thing is this. With an open Bible, seek God's will and say, God, help me to know how to honor you. Well, that brings us to the second one. The second one is perhaps even more puzzling, in particular to us who have limited understanding. And it's this, is that God can be glorified among differing convictions. Think about that for a second. God can be glorified among differing convictions. You're like, no, it's only one way. Well, in the closed hand issues, you got it right. There's one way. But when he talks about the non-essentials, it's interesting, is that Romans chapter 14 tells us that he can be glorified in differing convictions. Now, I just want to say it one more time. This principle is only true for open hand issues. Okay? For you to conclude that Jesus is not the only way to the Father does not glorify God. Okay? But with open hand issues, it's true, even if it's hard to believe. And why it's hard to believe is this. If you and I actually do point one, we say, okay, God, I'm taking this issue. Open my Bible. I'm seeking your face. I'm asking other believers, hey, have you thought through this? What are the principles you've seen in the scriptures to help me to, 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 to know how to honor God in this area of my life? And all of a sudden, you arrive at a conclusion about whether it's your diet or your holidays or how, how you how you do your kid's education or entertainment or whatever it is that you do. Isn't it really hard to imagine 
someone else coming to a different conclusion by doing the same thing. But that's exactly what Romans 14 teaches happens. It says that's exactly what happens. I want to show you. Look at verse 6. Actually, before we get to verse 6, let me show you something even a little bit more striking. I want you to notice that Paul groups the entire church into one of two categories, and he calls those categories weak and strong. <laughs> Think about that. All right, we've got the weak people and the strong people. Well, how many want to be weak? No. How many always assume the other people are weak when we differ in our convictions? All, right? All of us. So he just says, all right, look, there's the weak and there's the strong. He says it in verse 1. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And then look at chapter 15, verse 1. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourself. But I also want you to notice in this passage is that Paul is very impressed with both groups. Look at verse 6. He says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So do you see it? Both of these groups that have been categorized by the words weak and strong. Both of these groups are conscious of God. They're both looking up to him for direction. They're both reading their Bible. They're both praying. They're both acting out of faith and they're both thanking God, not only for the conviction, but the privilege to live according to that conviction. Neither group is thinking that by their actions, they're contributing to their justification before God. You say, well, if he's impressed with both of them, then why in the world would he call one of them weak? And I think there's two reasons, okay? The first is, is, um, uh, is not as important as the second one, but I think there's a human element in the first. And that's simply this. I think perhaps Paul's illustrating our tendency to assign weakness to those not like us. Isn't it just natural to conclude that, well, once we've sought the Lord, well, we're in the right. You must not have sought the Lord. We all naturally do that. Sort of our default position. We naturally just call each other weak when we don't agree with us. But I think there's another reason that's more significant. And that is, it's more probable that a weakness in knowledge was constricting Christian freedom. And the reason I would say this is because the similar issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols is also mentioned in three different chapters in 1 Corinthians. See, the church in Corinth, they were struggling with the same thing. They were contending and fighting about the same thing. And so Paul wrote them three chapters, if you should do this. And in chapter 8, this is what he says, starting in verse 4. He says, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, meaning they were at one time idolaters, offering meat to these, 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 these idols. They eat food now is really offered to an idol, and their consciences being weak is defiled. 
So in this case, it was a lack of knowledge, a lack of knowledge that there's only one God, that the idols, that, no, that there's no deity within those idols. They're just carved wood and stone and objects on the world, uh, on this earth where, 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 where people bow down and worship and seek favor from whatever it is that they're seeking to worship. And what he's saying here is this, is it's a lack of knowledge that there is a one true God and that there's no gods in those idols. It's limiting their freedom to eat without violating their conscience. Now, what he does next, I think, is just so servant-hearted. Because he could stop right there. And everyone here who has sought the Lord said, well, man, man, wait, is it, like, is he calling me weak? He's just going to leave it there? What he does is this. He comes in, and for everyone who was on Paul's strong side of the list in this one single conviction. Now, this is just one issue they're dealing with, right? But everyone who was strong, they probably read this and said, see, I told you I was right. And all of a sudden, pride wells up in the heart. And all the people who were on the other side of the argument, thought, oh my goodness, I was wrong. The apostle Paul just rebuked me in front of everybody. How terrible is this? I'm t-. And what he does is he cuts the legs off the pride and he lifts up the weak. I want to show you how he does it. He says, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You say, okay, Brian, what does that mean? I believe it means this, that life and death are the ultimate expressions, the ultimate extremes of eating and abstaining. You keep eating, you keep living. You abstain from all food, you would die. I also think he's using life and death as the bookends of all human experience. So what he's saying is simply this, is that life and death, the ultimate extremes of eating and abstaining, are experienced by Christians to the Lord. The one who lives, lives to the Lord. The Christian who dies, dies to the Lord. And Jesus came from heaven to earth, and he died. He lived a righteous life, and then he died. And so he's the Lord, not only of over life, but he's also the Lord over death. I believe what he's doing is he's saying this. He goes, guys, look, Jesus Christ, his worth and his victory in life and death incorporates the whole thing so that he can be glorified by both. If your conscience is still violated by choosing to do something, well, you can still glorify God because he's Lord over that as well. And if your conscience is not violated and you have a freedom over a non-essential, well, you know what? Jesus is Lord over that as well. And so I believe there's two great reasons not to cast judgment to each other about issues that are non-essentials. The first is because even as other people continue to mature and grow in the Lord, they can glorify God where they currently are if faith and love is what's driving their conviction. So if you, on any issue, you arrive at a, at a conclusion here, and in your heart you believe that you're in the strong camp and other people are in a weak camp, then what he's saying here is this. There's no reason for you to cast judgment about this person, ultimately because they're probably going to be inclined to cat and think, well, I'm the strong one, you're the weak one. But in both cases, we're all growing. We're all growing. And if we look to the Lord and receive what we believe is confirmation as to what he wants us to do in the non-essentials, 
we also have to be able to trust that other people are doing the same thing. And that allows us to continue to protect the unity. I think there's one other reason why he tells us not to cast judgment, and that's this. Time may prove that we are the weak one. It may have happened to you. I know it's happened to me. There's been times I've been a believer for 25 years, and I know that in my first five, 10 years as a believer, there were convictions in my life that the time I was arguing for, that now I look back and go, I was actually arguing about who I've become. I've changed. I have a different perspective as God has opened up more of the scriptures to me in terms of the non-essentials. And so there's no reason to judge others about those non-essentials because you may come to find out that you're the weak one. And it's that you need to grow in knowledge and allow Christian freedom to become an expression in your life. Well, that leads us to the last point, and that's this, is that God invites us to welcome others as he has welcomed us. He invites us to welcome others as he has welcomed us. It really is a beautiful thing. He says in verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. Not to quarrel over opinions. What he's saying here is to be accepting to whomever you think is the weaker brother. Don't reject him. Don't ridicule him. Don't patronize him. We do this in the South, don't we? We don't, we don't come out and just say, well, you're an idiot. We say, well, bless your heart. You know, that's what we say. You know, so if you're from the North or the Midwest and someone comes up and says, well, bless your heart. That's typically not a compliment down here, okay? He's, he's not saying, welcome him in. And you say, well, you know, bless your heart. You'll grow. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying to welcome them, not to change them and to argue with them, but to welcome them because you've been welcomed. You see, you've got to understand this, Providence. We all do, is that we're the children of God's family. And so when an individual trusts Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and God tells us that he adopts that person into his family, our job as brothers and sisters, as we're already in the family, is not to evaluate God's adoption or to approve of it, but it's to welcome those whom he has adopted. It's to welcome them, to love them, and to be patient with them. Why? Why? Because God has welcomed you. He's welcomed you. and He's welcomed me. Romans 15, 7, he's going to say it again. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see, the great foundation of our forbearance with one another to protect unity is that we have all been accepted and welcomed by God. We cannot lay aside the gospel that brings us together in order to splinter over that which would tear us apart. Hold on to what is most important. He says, who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? Well, and then he says, it is before his own master that he stands or falls. You see, he spends great time from verses 10 down to 12 speaking of the fact that we're all going to give an account to our one master, our one Lord in heaven. And I want you to know that and see that there's some great, great news for you and for me. It's wrapped up in just a few words 
And it's at the very end of verse four. He says, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now what's happening here? What he's saying is that every believer will stand. That we need to be patient because God is not finished with us. That every believer will stand accepted in the last day. That the weakest believer you know will stand forgiven and righteous and accepted in the last day because of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, we're told that God looked down upon us and after promising that he would send the Messiah, that he would send one that was born of woman in order to come and crush the head of evil and, re- and, and, and then redeem and reconcile us back into a right relationship with him. And we're told in, in uh, uh, the fourth chapter of Galatians, it says in the fullness of time, this is exactly what God did. It said Jesus Christ was born of a woman and, and he came and he lived on this life, on, on this earth. And he lived a perfect life, a righteous life before God. And yet Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and yours. He was buried in a grave. And then three days later, he rose from the dead and extended to us an invitation that if we would trust in Jesus as our savior, trust in his righteousness alone, that there's nothing that we can do that can contribute to our standing with with him before God. He says that we will literally be justified, we'll be accepted, we'll be vindicated before him. See, sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes when I look back on my, on my life, even on days where I wake up and I start the day and I say, God, this is, this is your life, this is your day, just use me. And I, I mean, some days I start really well. They don't all start like that, but some days they do. It's amazing, even those days, there's a time that I find myself on the floor spiritually where I've tripped. And I'm like, man, even on a day that I started so well. And so sometimes when I think about that day of me personally, Brian, standing before God Almighty, my creator, with nobody else, I have a real hard time thinking that I'm going to stay upright I can only see myself falling on my face and saying, God, you're holy and I am not. And that's what it says here is that Jesus Christ gets up. He comes over and he says, I will make you stand, not force you to because you don't want to. But I will help you do it because you can't. And I will help you stand. I will uphold you. So in that day, you'll be able to stand. You see, this is the good news that you have is that no matter what you've done this week, good or bad, you have not subtracted or added even a sliver to the righteousness that is yours if you know Jesus as your Savior. And so today, they're, they're in a room this side, there may be people in this room that right now, if you died, you couldn't stand. You, you couldn't stand righteous before God because you're not righteous before God. And what Paul would tell you today, I believe, and what Jesus would tell you today is that you can be welcomed home by looking to Jesus. If you'll trust Jesus, he will clean you. He will adopt you. Come to him. He will welcome you. And we want you to know we will welcome you too.
You don't have to have it all together to be here because nobody does. Nobody does. In Providence, I would just exhort us to love. To love and to welcome one another. Let us receive and accept one another and not divide or allow ourselves to be divided over non-essentials. We have been saved by grace and we will all stand before God in judgment. And by God's grace, he will strengthen us to be able to stand on that day in total confidence because of his grace alone. Let's excel in love. Let's pray to God. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your love for us. We're grateful that you give us the scriptures to be able to instruct us and to help us. We thank you, Lord, that it's true. We believe this is true. And so, God, I pray for those who are here who don't know you as Savior and Lord. God, would you pull them to yourself now? Would you draw them to yourself now? Would you help them, Lord, to lay aside and count everything a, con- everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ? God, would you help them to lay aside what they believe is a righteous life because they've done some good things and help them to see the insufficiency of imperfection in standing before you. And God, this morning, would you draw their hearts to be able to see the invitation that Jesus is giving to them? Perfect righteousness. Vindicating righteousness. To be able to stand before you without shame. So God, today, would you draw them? And for us as a body of believers, God, would you help us to be Loving, welcoming, caring. God, help us to welcome those whom you adopt to the family. Not to change them or to patronize them. But to walk with them and they with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.